Today's scripture is Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 23 through 27. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not King Solomon, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nonetheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do, do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Peggy. It was kind of unsettling to hear sweet Peggy talking about all that <laughs> violence. Um, well, hello, everyone. Um, my name's Dave. I'm um, one of the pe pastors here. There we are. I can see some people. It's, yeah, great to, um, to see you. And uh, uh, if you are new or you've never heard me preach before, I want to let you know I stutter, and it kind of comes in and out as I go. So I just want to make sure that you know what that is. And um, again, just so glad, though, that we can all be here together and, and just uh, spend this time in, in God's Word. And um, man, there's so much to say. It's been a, a long summer, kind of here and there, and just a many of us have been, uh, I don't think Marcus, Keith, and Jake and I have all been in the same place, in the same town at the same time all summer. And uh, But I, I do just want to take a moment as I kind of get into um, into preaching, just how thankful I am for the plurality of leadership within our, vo our, our church and just how healthy it is to hear from different vo voices and different uh, godly gifted um, pastors preach through God's word. So that's just been a blessing throughout the whole, whole summer. And uh, so, yeah, amen. So uh, with that, well, would you join me in thanking God uh, for all he's done and, and asking him to oversee our time uh, together this evening and this mo morning? Heavenly Father, we need you. Um, even as we read in your word, um, we are a fickle people, prone to wander. And um, Lord, our minds are prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to wander, as we just sang about, to worship um, created things, to replace our creator, Lord, you who made us in your image, to live all of life um, where our purpose and our identity are found in you and to flourish under your care. And yet we have wandered and tried to replace you with, with, with things that, that are futile, that uh, never fail to fail, that always overpromise and underdeliver. So, Lord, um, as we get into a heavy text together, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you will speak to us. Um, Holy Spirit, I ask that you will convict us where we need to be 
convicted. I, I ask that you will encourage us where we need to be encouraged and that ultimately you will shape us all by, by who you are and by who we are uh, under you in submission to you. So Lord, with a posture of hum- humility and dependence, we come before you together. In Jesus' name, amen. So kind of picking up, so this is our last week in Nehemiah. Uh, somebody uttered, mumbled, I won't say who, thank God, uh, earlier when we talked about that. But we have been in Nehemiah for, um, for uh, a number of weeks, and so we're in chapter 13. So go ahead and turn with me there if you have a copy of God's Word with you. Um, if not, I think we have some in the back there. Um, we're, in somebody, we're on somebody else's couch here as we're in um, Mission Church. So um, I think they're their Bibles, but we can, we can use them. Um, so go ahead and help yourself to one if you need one. Um, but it just kind of get into where we've been here. So Nehemiah, we entered in. Um, Nehemiah was a royal official um, in, the, in the, the kingdom of Medea, Persia. And he's Jewish, and the Jewish people had been taken captive for about 70 years. And they're in this place, and they're under somebody else's rule. And, and so Nehemiah is allowed to go back to Jerusalem, to Israel, to rebuild a wall um, where God's people can gather and worship at the temple and live as a holy, okay, that word holy means set apart. So a holy, set-apart people worshiping God to flourish and thrive as his people and to be what's referred to as a light to the nations. So all other nations and kingdoms can see what life looks like flourishing, thriving under the one true God in relationship with him. So that's, that's the plan. And then we've been in this repetitive cycle as we've been in Nehemiah. So he went back. He went back to Persia like he promised in, in uh, chapter two. He told the king, hey, I'll be back, you know, like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, uh, you know, he, so he went back. Some of you are not old enough to even know that, but I'll just keep going there. Terminator one and two. Um, but then he, so he goes back. It's about a 55 day journey to go from Jerusalem back to Persia. It, it's about 1200 miles. So Nehemiah went back there, but he started hearing of some things. Things weren't going very well. And he comes back and uh, uh, to, to kind of bring wrath, as we just heard. He took that whole journey to go back and to call his fellow Jewish people out on, on the way they're living. Um, basically, everything we've heard over the last few weeks from chapters 10 through 12 um, and even beyond, they've done the exact opposite. So that's where we're picking up um, with me. So you can imagine there's a bit of frustration and exhaustion. So go ahead with that um, and meet me in um, chapter 13, verse 1. And um, I'll read here. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the beginning or in the hearing of the people. And And in it, was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. So quick pause there. Um, They are singled out, the Moabites 
and the Ammonites um, because of their style of worship and their, how their worship informed their entire lives um, was, was incredibly terrible. It included, as Pastor Marcus mentioned last week, animal or human sacrifice, child sacrifice, and there was all kinds of evil and debauchery um, and, and injustice done in their worship. And so, so that's why they are specifically called out here. And then it says, um, so no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. That's just the theme, uh, by the way. As was said earlier, whatever you're walking through, wherever you find yourself, um, if you are in the light, as scripture refers to, you're under God's care, ultimately he, he will work things out uh, for his, his glory and for the good of his people. So verse three, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Um, and now we'll just keep going here. Um, now before this, Eliashib the priest, so this is a priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah. So this is an Ammonite, by the way. If you've been following along through Nehemiah, which that's how this book would have been read, you're like, oh, Tobiah, ding, ding, ding. That's an Ammonite. And Deuteronomy chapter 23 specifically says, no Ammonites are to come into the temple, to the place where holy, almighty God meets with his people this sacred and holy set apart people. So he prepared for Tobiah, picking up here in verse five, a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for I was in, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. So as we said, he went, he went back. All right, so what's going on here? So this chamber in the temple, it's like a massive warehouse section kind of room, which is where people would bring their tithes and offerings. Okay, some of it financial, but also the grain, uh, the meat, the different things that were brought that would, that would basically fund the mission of God. They would keep the ministry of God going, um, including generous giving toward others. Um, Like we talked about last week, giving of alms, year of jubilee, all these things, this kind of tithes and giving and all these things would be used for that kind of ministry. And also, I care a little bit about this one, uh, the, the priests or the people who were conducting the work of the ministry, this is where they would uh, basically get their low, let me find a new word, um, their livelihood from, right? They would, they would feed, um, they, would, they, would, they would get, uh, they would be able to survive and eat their food and all this stuff by what people brought and gave in their offerings. And so what, what did they do with this? He, he gets all that moved out and lets this guy Tobiah move in. And there's all kinds of reason for that. Okay, Tobiah is a man of influence, so there is political 
social, r- selfish reasons that this priest is abdicating his responsibility. Hopefully the dots are connecting for you. Uh, I don't need to try to connect them all um, for sake of, of, of time here, but for selfish reasons, for power, approval, and comfort, this priest basically defames God it doesn't uh, honor him by giving uh, space for what, what he called to by, by keeping the work of God going and is basically um, abdicating care for the most poor and marginalized among them in order to make space for an Ammonite to sing, head up shop, okay, to sleep there. And, and this is evil. This is not the way God designed uh, his, his people to operate. This is similar to, uh, okay, God, you said to live this way, but it makes more sense to me or it's more convenient to do it this way. All the way back in Genesis chapter three, when sin, which in a nutshell means no thanks, means I'll have it my way, means you're not really God, I'm God. That's the, that's the essence of sin in scripture. And in Genesis chapter three, when sin enters into the world, it's, I don't want to do things your way. I want it my way. And this is one example of many where we see that happening. And skipping down here to um, verse 8, Nehemiah shares, okay, this is now like we're getting an inside look at his journal entry. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Um, Again, quickly here, we see a snapshot in Nehemiah of anger. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, but how many of us struggle with anger? Some of you have been here for a long time. You know some of my stories and confessions from the pulpit. Um, You know, anger is, 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 uh, is, is not always good. It's not always bad. In Nehemiah, I think in this chapter, we see snapshots of both. What Peggy read earlier in that scripture, tearing out hair, just going off. I don't know that that's necessarily righteous anger. In this case, especially, he's throwing a tantrum. He's at his wit's end. But we also see here a foreshadowing of someone who definitely had righteous anger. When Jesus cleans the temple, he also throws or overturns furniture because the marginalized are being exploited and overlooked and because religious people are misusing their authority for selfish gain. Jesus will have none of it. And we see a foreshadowing of that in Nehemiah. And it's right and it's good. And so now we're going to see a um, kind of, if you'll remember what we brought up last week, over the last number of chapters, we've seen kind of the big three where God said, hey, if you're going to follow me, do these things, these three things, giving, generosity means uh, all that I have is not just for me. I trust God to, to bless my life, but also to, to, to graciously use me and my resources, my finances, my relationships to participate in his mission, to honor the Sabbath. And then this, it's a big word, syncretism. What this means in a nutshell, again, is, and I'm saying that term a lot. It's like I'm getting older now. So nutshell, that's kind of an 
old person term, I think, for me, right? So in a nutshell, um, you know, God willing in the creek don't rise. Um, I'll just throw out some old school terms there for us all. In a nutshell, syncretism means um, uh, this is what God says it looks like to follow him. And this is according to my culture or my convenience or my lifestyle. I'm going to add these things. I'm going to sprinkle some Jesus onto my life. It means I'm going to, um, you, again, you can hopefully connect some dots here. We see it all over the map. We see it on the right, the political right, the cultural right, the social right, and the left. The political, social, cultural left, and everywhere in between, outside of the narrow and difficult road, come on somebody, of following Jesus Outside of that place, we see a temptation to say, as long as I slap a little phrase on this, as long as I put God bless this or do this, then it's okay. That's syncretism. And we're going to see God doesn't like that. He will not be replaced. He alone is God. And he alone knows where life and flourishing are found. And so with that, um, that's where we continue. And, and if you remember from back when we preached through Judges, which was years ago, most of you probably don't, um, this theme is the same, the same theme has happened here in Nehemiah, where Nehemiah is, is pretty much a book of um, failure. In Judges, we use this image because each week it was like a downward spiral and the Spirit descended upon me one time while preaching and I, and I gave a great image that uh, I did not, flesh and blood did not reveal of a toilet, <laughs> right? You flush a toilet and what does it do? It just downward spiral into unspeakable places. And the same theme is happening here in Nehemiah. This last chapter especially is somewhat of a book of failure. It's a message of, throw the big three up there again for me, Coop. Um, giving, observing the Sabbath, and having one true God and not trying to add and take away. This is failure. His people fail time and time again. A big idea for this sermon is this. When left to ourselves, God's people always fail. So let's enter into an encouraging <laughs> uh, look at failure, picking up in verse 10 here of, um, of how they failed to give. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So the priests who were supposed to do this work were like, there's no food for me to eat where I'm supposed to be fed from, from the, 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 the temple courts here. So I'm gonna leave now and go back to my field so at least I can survive. Okay, I'm gonna become bivocational again, which isn't always a bad thing, but in this case, it's because of the people's failure to give as God commanded them to give. Again, I'll let the Spirit convict you wherever you need to be convicted on that. Um, verse 11, so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. So there's, uh, again, Nehemiah throws a tantrum. <laughs> he, 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 and he calls the people out. And in this case, as has happened many times throughout Nehemiah, the people kind of have a, a, a church camp experience 
Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'll never do that again. I, I, know, I know I've done that. I know I've made that promise, but this time's different. And they do. They give. And so he calls them out on their lack of giving, and they respond the, this time. And then pick up with me in, uh, down in verse 15 here regarding Sabbath breaking. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. And then other, so verse 16 here, Tyrians also who lived in the city. So these are not Jewish people, but other people who lived in the city. They brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. So the same thing, when, when Jesus gets mad and turns over the temple, the same thing has happened. And again, just wherever you need to be, maybe look kind of square at, at this kind of brokenness. Um, so some Jewish people were like, well, I'm not breaking the Sabbath, but I'm conveniently uh, using the other people who aren't Jewish people, rather than being a light to the nations, rather than being a set-apart people, I'm going to justify my, my marriage to the, the, the people of this world. Again, in the same day in, as in their day, on the left, on the right, wherever it is, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is this, is this difficult and narrow road where we say, this doesn't make sense to me, but God, you said to observe the Sabbath. Why? What's the big deal with the Sabbath? Again, confession here, I personally do not observe the Sabbath very well. My wife has blessed our home in the last year in helping to usher us and lead us better to help make up for my failure as the, as the leader of our home, to guide us toward honoring and observing and being blessed by the Sabbath. I don't know that I would have survived this last year outside of uh, some, some well-placed Sabbath. So thank you, honey. And uh, I, again, just that's, but that's, that's a confession of failure. In our day, we presume upon grace a little bit too much. Grace means undeserved favor. Ah, oh, God, hey, that's the old, that's the law, that's the old testament. Well, at the heart of the Sabbath, just like every other law, man, I'm, I don't know if I had too much espresso or what here, but I want to connect some dots even. Um, if you want to understand the law a little bit better, and what does it look like as a Christian to observe the law, right? Because it's like, oh, that's Old Testament. That was works-oriented. Now it's grace. No, the law was also grace-oriented. Um, what it looks like now to live under grace and to follow the, the kingdom of heaven, the law uh, of grace. Look at, um, look at Matthew chapter 5 through 7 the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, whoa, 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 no, you don't replace the law. In fact, I'm saying unless you observe the law to every, every, every I dotted and every T crossed, you, your, your righteousness, your observance of the law should out, uh, outperform even the Pharisees who they, they were sticklers, all right? So the Sabbath is, at its heart, a weekly routine reminder that you and I are not God, that he is God, that we are creatures who depend on him, who need him, who say, God, though everything in me, every 
person around me and everything in me is saying, yeah, but I really need to check that email seven days a week. One day of me not responding to emails is, and that might not be your thing, might be text, might be social media, where do you find life, where do you find yourself being responsible, where do you have to think you're in control that if you or I don't do something, the world is going to just fall apart, whatever it is, we break Sabbath. And it's not just a ritualistic routine of, I just do this thing for whatever reason, that's gone since Jesus came, no, it's a gift. Uh, so if you want to talk about that more, email us at Tucson at RedemptionAZ.com. There's some incredible books, podcasts, sermons. There's kind of a revival of, of remembering the, the Sabbath. And here, like in our day, the people are failing, failing to be a set-apart people. What would it look like if we observed the Sabbath? What kind of message, what kind of light to the world around us that is struggling, that is exhausted, that is overwhelmed, that never rests, saw a group of people living life, flourishing and thriving under God, the creator, worshiping him, embracing our roles as created in his image, dependent beings. And then this last one here is syncretism. Um, let me read verses uh, 23 through 25 because we're going to camp out here and kind of spend some time because this is, again, a biggie. Let me find my place here. Verse 25. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women among the many nations? There was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. So what's going on with this is, again, Marcus mentioned briefly there, is, and I just want to kind of acknowledge the potential awkwardness here. Seems like um, intermarriage. It, it seems like, and Marcus asked this question, is good, is like, is God racist? No. It, this is not about race or ethnicity. This is about worship. And what was happening, again, is Moabites and Ammonites even King Solomon, who was this blessed king, who was meant to lead God's, God's people in, in all of life kind of worship, he, he married women, many women, who worshiped other gods. And what happened, just like in our day, when you start missionary dating, missionary marrying, let me pause for a quick second, yes, God is good and can redeem all things. We have some couples in our church who, who were, were married when one was a follower of Jesus and one was not. My wife and I went to a memorial last Saturday of a dear friend for years and years who just passed away, and, and, and they were a missionary marriage. And she, I think, would say, that's not the way it should be. Um, God worked in spite of us. This shouldn't be an example to follow. Um, there's more where that came from. I want to pound on that a bit for us. But, but, it's, um, but again, just to this, this racial um, issue, it's a worship issue. And there's an example of a Moabite woman 
named Ruth. One of the best, most beautiful stories in all of scripture. It was the, uh, the first actually book that we walked through as a church. Um, almost seven years ago, we walked through a couple sermon series and the first book we walked through was the book of Ruth. And we camped out there and you see that Ruth was the great grandmother of David, King David, who was the father of this Solomon who's mentioned. And you know what happened in that same line? 14 generations after Ruth is Jesus. So Jesus had running through his veins Moabite blood. But she came humbly. She converted. She didn't try to sprinkle in a little Jesus or a little bit of Christianity to this religion, to that religion. She, as, as it said throughout, the, she tore down the, the high places. She said, your, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She gave it all up. She went all in with following the Lord alone. And so, and so, and she was, she was acknowledged for that, praised for that. She's, she's in the, the hall of faith in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12 is her, her story is beautiful and is good and should be recited and remembered among God's people. So it's not about, oh, those people are bad because of this ethnicity or this nationality or whatever it is. Um, it was about worship. Again, let me just pause there and hammer in for, okay, uh, look at me for a moment. Um, Every generation in this room, whether you have no hair because you're brand new or no hair because you're getting pretty old, well, wherever we are in that spectrum, we, I think, are prone to, again, justify. This came to mind of how many people now, as I'm getting older and I have peers who have kids who are starting to marry and started to meet their, their lifelong, and some of my friends who, who, are, who are, are Christians, will, will, you'll ask them, oh, how are your kids? You know, oh, my, my daughter met a, met a boy. Oh, he's a nice boy. Oh, oh yeah, where, you know, what's he like? What, what, you know, oh, he comes from a good family. Now tell you, oh, he went to one of the military academies. This is actually a true story I'm thinking. Of. Went to one of the military academies. Um, okay, yeah, and I'm waiting like, how's, does he love Jesus? Ah, oh, you know, again, good, good, uh, good, yeah, from the south, you know, went to church. Was ba- and they kind of sprinkle in there. But, but this sense of like, oh, so kind of surface level, there's these a lot of things that maybe in your version of good connect here, but Jesus is an ultimate. As a, as a dad, I mean, my kids hold me accountable to this. Man, if my kids, I don't know what my version is for me, what would be a, sh- a struggle job-wise, where I'm like, oh, you know, that's okay. That's what they do. That's what he does. That's what she, you know, like, ah, oh, that's a, sh- a struggle. I don't know what that is for me. I'm sure there are some. Um, but hopefully, again, you can all, like, Ultimately, it comes down to, will you, do you love and follow Jesus? Is your identity and your purpose uh, ultimately coming under him? Is, is your parenting, whatever, like your finances, like where you're at on the financial, socioeconomic bracket, whatever it is, like that stuff is like way down on the list. Jesus here, young people, I, I know and I, I sympathize and I, my heart breaks too for people who long to be married but aren't and are like, there's, and, and I've seen this happen of, well, man, the church has kind of failed me. There are no, it's normally, I'll just be totally candid, men. There aren't uh, many single men taking 
an initiative, um, you know, asking me out on dates or just they're, they're kind of just dropping the ball here. But this guy at my coworker is like solid. He treats me really well. He's, he seems to have a, a better understanding than a lot of Christians of loving God and loving others. He's more generous than most, you know, and there's this, and that's a failure on a lot, us as a church and a lot of young men, um, myself included as a young man, man one day back in the day. And, um, you know, but it's, the answer is not to settle. The answer is not to look elsewhere. So, so let us be convicted about how we handle this because it is massively important. Why is Nehemiah tearing out hair and throwing things and cussing and, you know, what, what's going on there? While his actions may or may not have been right or good, um, he's on to something here that, that is serious. Um, his concern, verse 24, look at it again. Verse 24, and half of their chi- children spoke the language of Ashdod. They could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Legacy. Let me tell you, um, if you're born in a Christian home, Christian family, or you're a parent of kids that are growing up in a Christian family, that should not be your place of comfort. That, I'll just say this because it comes to mind. I just did my dad's memorial two weeks ago, and he was a police officer, so I feel like I could say this, but being born in a Christian home makes you no more a Christian than being born in a donut shop makes you a cop. It's, uh, it's, you can't, um, you can't just assume like, oh, cool, born in a Christian home, or oh, my kids are, we say grace before dinner. And Nehemiah's concern is legacy, is future generations, is what's at stake here? This is massively important. And he brings up, um, he brings up Solomon. What's the big deal with, with Solomon? Um, Solomon was a picture of empty man-made promises and simultaneously, um, life-giving, eternally secure, God-given promises. How many of you have made promises that you failed to deliver on. Um, I remember, some of you know my love for Mount Lemmon. Have you seen Mount Lemmon lately? It is green and beautiful and lush. Well, Mount Lemmon is a picture of beauty for me. It's where I asked my now wife to be uh, my girlfriend. It's all kinds of parts of our story took place on Mount Lemmon, um, including, though, my own story. Uh, long story short, I, um, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was in Arkansas and I was like president of fellowship of Christian athletes. I was in all this stuff. Like I was the kid that parents wanted their kid to be around, right? It was like, okay, you're normally not allowed to have this friend spending the night on our couch, like three nights in a row, which I was also, I was also a, a hustler. I knew where the food would, would be the best food. So I'd be, I'd often just spend nights at different houses and, um, and I was that kid. And I remember um, when some of my friends, you know, s- started experimenting with drugs and smoking weed and stuff like that. And there's a whole backstory of my own family that is just 
lots of drugs and alcohol addiction and use. And I remember as this, you know, little short, still bold, you know, sophomore, like I will never do drugs. Like I will, I can't get it. And I'm judging all my friends and all this. Well, fast forward about a year later, I move out of the Bible belt in here to, you know, heathen old Tucson, Arizona. And, um, and I'm, I'm going to school and I got a sports injury and I wanted friends and it seemed like all the Christian friends I had were like super nerdy, not that I wasn't, but I'm just like, man, where can I find some friends here? And so most of my friends were like partying. So eventually I'm like, I'll go to the, and fast forward, you know, this downward toilet spiral, um, of uh, about three months worth of, you know, going to parties on Friday and then on Sunday having like an extra long time in the word and promising God, I won't do it again. I promise you this week's going to be different. And then it wouldn't. And on Mount Lemmon, I got caught. Uh, the one time I, ever, I smoked weed and got caught by the Port Patrol and um, all this stuff. And we, and I remember driving down from Mount Lemmon, again, a junior now in high school, and just God just struck me with like, my promises are empty. I have three months worth of empty promises. And that's kind of a safe one. I have other ones that are harder. You know, that was, oh, 25 years ago. When I was, but hopefully we all can just admit and hopefully sit in this empty promises. Solomon, I mentioned, is, uh, is a picture of empty promises. In, in, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, King David had made a promise, a declaration of what he would do for God. After all his sinning, after he sinned with Bathsheba and then murdered her, her husband and did all this kind of evil and, and repented and all this, he still didn't get it. And he said, God, I'm going to build you a house, right? A big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. <laughs> I'm going to build you a temple, God. I'm going to do it. You're going to be blown away by this crib I'm going to put together for you. And God's like, no, no, no. And, and, and I think in there, his point is he says, you're a man of war and, and I'm not going to have you build this, but I'm going to have you put this all together. But also there's this, this, this thread, this undercurrent of your promises aren't what I'm counting on. And he tells him in return, I'm going to make a promise to you. Your promises, Solomon, are failure, or David will ultimately fail. And as we see here, Solomon's promises ultimately fail. But Solomon was a picture of hope for God's people. And I think that's why Nehemiah brought him up. Because um, let me read to you chapter, um, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We have it up here. Verses 12 through 13. When your days are fulfilled. So this is God now telling David. Okay, David, I heard your promise. Let me one-up you here. Let me put this into perspective. When your days are fulfilled, when you die, when you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Guess what? Solomon failed. If God's promise to David was met in Solomon, then that was an empty, that was a lie. But God's not a liar. God's promise is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. It comes from the line of Solomon. Though he died, he didn't stay there. He rose from the dead. And though he rose from the dead, he never died again. He ascended to the right hand of God 
where he's at right now on the throne. And you know what he's saying? We get a snapshot in Revelation, way at the end of the Bible. The, John has a picture of Jesus. And you know what he, what, what he says? He says, I see Jesus and he's on the throne. And you know what he's saying? Behold, I am making all things new. That's our hope today. Our hope, God's, God's plan for you, your hope for your life, God's, God's work in and through you and me, hear me, is never contingent upon the fulfillment of our promises. Whatever it is for you, I'll never click that site again. I'll never do that again. I'll never say that again. That's, that's David. Oh God, I'll do this for you. This, that's me until he met me on Mount Lemmon. That's empty. It is futile. It will always fall apart. It will never fail to fail. But instead, a submission, a humble submission that says, God, I need you. So let me ask here, what do we do with this? We cling to some of the best words in Scripture. But God. What does it look like for you to what, what sin came to mind during that time of confession? I'm going a little long here. We're wrapping up Nehemiah. I think God wants us, to, wants us to individually and corporately sit in this place as a church. What came to mind for you with confession? What right now is the spirit bringing to mind that you are just in that downward toilet spiral in your life? Well, whatever kind of ism might come, some kind of habit, what it looks like is you look at it and you say, God, this is evil. This is wrong. I agree with you. This is, this is trying to take control of the world that you created and, and the life that you've entrusted to me. I, I am sorry and I acknowledge I deserve your judgment. But God, throw up here Ephesians chapter two. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Undeserved favor. But God, it means you acknowledge that God rescues you by his grace. He didn't need you. In fact, you and I only got in the way. The only thing you and I bring to a relationship with God is what? Sin. That's it. But what do we walk away with? Life. Forgiveness redemption, wholeness, freedom. And so we look at it and we say, God, this is what I brought, but you have given me mercy. Nehemiah, um, if you're taking notes here, three times in this chapter, in verse 14, in verse 22, and in verse 31, he says, remember me, remember me. And you and I might read that and think, man, he's being kind of narcissistic. He's saying, you know, oh, help, you know, let me, let me, uh, like, don't forget me. All these other suckers, they sin, they deserve your wrath, but remember me, I did my best. No, what he's saying is, I did my best and my, my best wasn't good enough. It's a plea for God's intervention. It's the same prayer all throughout scripture. Lord, have mercy. So, I'm going to ask everyone here to close our eyes as I pray and lead us into a time of response. Um, and I'm going to pray what's called the mercy prayer. 
Lord, have mercy for those who sin and those who suffer. For those who suffer because of sin and for those who sin to alleviate their suffering. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, we need you. Lord, those who sin, every one of us in this room sins. We all have wandered. Each one of us has gone our own way. We've tried to replace you. And every one of us in this room has suffered. We've suffered because of our own sin and we've suffered because of other people's sin. We are a sinful and a suffering people. Lord Jesus, our only hope is your mercy. Will you lead us to follow you to cling to your mercy, to be a people shaped by your mercy where we don't try to justify our sin, we acknowledge it, we agree with it, and then we cling to your grace and to your mercy and then we, we, we trust that you have said, you are forgiven, now go and sin no more. In light of my grace for you, in light of my mercy for you, the old is gone, the new has come. Live the life I have called you into. Thank you, Jesus, for that invitation to every one of us, individually and corporately as your people. In your name we pray, amen.